Good morning. So nice to see all of you. We have another pretty full house, which is wonderful, especially with holiday travels coming up. So thank you all very much for being here. This week, we are continuing our study of the engaged Buddhist precepts. But before I kind of get into precept we're going to be talking about, I wanted to have a little discussion about how I have been working with precepts and kind of understand them and kind of the general approach to precepts that I have found helpful for me. Because I remember when I first was thinking about asking to receive the precepts, and I read this laundry list of things we're not supposed to do. I said, holy, holy smokes, I'm not gonna be able to do any of that. Like, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna break them all the time. Like, how can, I, how can I ask to receive these things? But that's really not the spirit of the precepts at all. The precepts are meant to really be guide, guidance, guidelines for us and to keep us on the right path to help us identify ways in which we can create suffering and ways in which we can avoid creating suffering, to act more wholesomely and skillfully. There's, when I was first embarking on my journey with the precepts, I read a book about a Zen precept retreat, and the teacher there offered a story that about the precepts that are related to the precepts that I found very helpful in my life, so I thought I would share it with you, but it's about when William Penn was converting to become a Quaker, at the time, it was customary for gentlemen to wear swords on their hips. And William Penn, I mean, a Quaker, a nonviolent path, felt a little conflicted about the fact that he's becoming a Quaker, but then is wearing a sword, which is a weapon on his hip. And so he asked his friend who was helping him embark on this journey, you know, what do I... <laughs> What do I do with this thing that I, that I have to carry around with me? And his friend told him, wear it just as long as you can. And so that is kind of the spirit that I've been taking with me for the precepts, which isn't to you know, take off the sword and chuck it across the room, but notice that you're wearing it. Notice its weight and then just keep noticing it and noticing how it feels to carry that with you. And eventually you might find, actually, that's not so bad to take it off and leave it behind. And so when you're approaching the precepts, I'd like to encourage you to just wear, you know, whatever these behaviors that might come up that you feel might be unskillful. You know, you don't have to, you know, have to be averse to them, but just wear them just as long as you can, and then you can let them go. So these precepts are really just kind of, I like to think of a bowling alley where you know, those little rubber bumpers that run along the alley lane. It's kind of how I like to think about the precepts. You know, if you really want to go in the gutter, you can. <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> that's going to stop you from throwing that ball right in the gutter. But if you start to waver a little bit and go off the path, they provide a nice little restoring force, just kind of push you back towards skillful and wholesome behavior. So they're just, they're really there to assist you in your lives and just kind of guide you. So as we explore these, just kind of, don't think of them as commandments. Just think of them as just kind of gentle, helpful nudges <laughs> uh, to push you in the right direction. The precept we're going to be looking at today 
which I think is a fitting one for Thanksgiving, is related to stealing. And it reads, possess nothing that should belong to others. Respect the property of others, but prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. Possess nothing that should belong to others. Respect the property of others, prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. In our tradition, the precept relating that is similar, most similar to this one reads, no stealing or honoring the gift not yet given. And one other, <laughs> there's so many versions of these, but one other version that I like comes from Bodhidharma, which is self nature is subtle and mysterious in the realm of the unattainable Dharma, not having thoughts of gaining is called the precept of not stealing. So not having the thoughts of gaining is called the precept of not stealing. Last week, Taishin offered us a Dharma talk on living simply. And one of the things that definitely came up in our discussion about living simply is material possessions. And it turns out socks was the kind of item that everyone has too many of. <laughs> and a lot of, so our discussion, part of it was in kind of exploring this idea of possessions and having too many possessions. And I kind of thought it was interesting of why is it that we need to possess anything? Now, I don't mean don't have anything. You know, like I have an iPad, I have a car, clothes, all that sort of stuff. But is that just having these things, is that the same as possessing them? To me, the word possession, I don't, I don't love it. Uh, it. It makes me think of someone just kind of clenching a fist, like I want to possess, I want to possess this thing. I mean, if you call someone possessive, it's not a flattering thing to say <laughs> about the person. It doesn't get you warm fuzzies to hear they're possessive. <laughs> and so, but we call things our possessions. And so I just, this idea that hey, we have to possess something and that that's what the, the engaged Buddha, Buddhist precept reads is do not possess things that should belong to others. Mm -hmm. I was trying to think about why we might feel the need to possess things and how we might try to possess things. And one of the reasons that came up for me is similar to what we've been talking about in the previous weeks with respect to anger, which was anger is arising from having an unmet need. And so perhaps a reason we might try to possess things is we have an unmet need. There are, of course, myriads of unmet needs that we might have, but these could be physical needs, emotional needs, all sorts of things. And when we have these unmet needs and we're suffering and we feel like we're missing something and we need something, that is when I think is one way that we might try to start stealing. So I think there are lots of different ways to steal. The most obvious one, I think that comes up for all of us probably is material things. Someone, you know, someone boosting your car or stealing, I don't know, stealing a keyboard from work when you quit, something like that, but stealing material things. And some reasons people might steal material things would be 
let's say they steal food because they're hungry and they need food. We call it stealing, but they're trying to, you know, they, their body needs food. And so they, they take something that, to survive. So a lot of times we look at these things as material goods. But I think there are many other ways in which we can possess things that should belong to others. One is time, possessing someone else's time when it should belong to them. You know, you want them to pay attention to me. I don't want to give you time to do your own thing. You know, my stuff's more important. You should focus on me, focus on me. That kind of just goes hand in hand with attention, taking someone's attention when maybe it should be devoted to other things. You know, just pay attention to me. <laughs> Look out there. Look at me. Happily. <laughs> so possessing things that like something like attention. I think information is a very important and interesting way in which we can possess things that should belong to others. This could be information as if you're carrying out corporate espionage or something like that, or maybe a little more mundanely. Uh, I think gossip is actually a way of stealing in, in a sense where there's information that someone about their personal life that they don't necessarily want you to have, but you get it. And that's why it's so juicy It's because you know they don't really want me to know this, but I know it. So I think that is another way that we can possess things that should belong to others. I think you can be possessive of agency, someone's right to make decisions for themselves. This is going back to being possessive, is if you're possessive of someone, you're not really letting them make decisions in their life. And tied to agency is opportunities to make mistakes, allowing someone to make a mistake instead of just kind of controlling what they're doing and not letting them, you know, not letting your kid run into a wall or something and learn that they shouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> letting people and trusting people to make mistakes like that, I think is an important way in which we can interact. And along with making mistakes naturally is opportunities to learn. This is definitely one that I've had previous experience with when I was younger and in uh, undergrad. The, uh, you know, there's always that kid who has their hand raised in class with the answer. That was me. That was definitely me. At the time, I rationalized it to myself in that, okay, if I don't answer, there's going to be this really long silence. No one's going to answer. The professor's going to get impatient. So I'll just answer it. But I think in reality, it was maybe a little bit more of, I want, I want to be the one with the answer. I want, to, I want to show everyone I know what I'm talking about here. And also, if I had just waited and really just let that pause, maybe someone was trying to work up the courage to answer and share their understanding. And by always, <laughs> I got it, <laughs> I'll do it. By always jumping right at it, I was taking opportunities from others to share their understanding and their perspective. Now, a couple of weeks ago, in one of the talks, NATO offered us a, I don't know if it's a meta, I guess I'd call it a metaphor, but of this, we're, when we're kind of constructing this self, it's like building a house. 
And then we start to fill it with possessions and just pack it full of stuff. And eventually that house, house obscures the moon and the sky, but it's full of things. And it makes us feel solid. It makes us feel really real, grounded. Yeah, look at all my, all my stuff. Like, oh, I have all this stuff. I'm, it's mine. I'm here. But at the same time, when it's giving us this delusion of solidity that we're that we're just that we have all these things it's obscuring this big expansive space and the moon and i think in all the examples i can think of of what we might call stealing every single one of them involves creating a separation i'm stealing from you what belongs to you, what belongs to me, I'm taking it from you, it's becoming mine. All of them requires this separation between myself and others, for me to be able to actually take something from them. But as I understand Buddha's teachings, it would tell us that separation is a delusion. There really isn't it's something we create in our minds, this idea that we are separate. We are, of course, different. If we look around, we see lots of different wonderful people. There's lots of different things in the world. But while we're all different, that is not the same as being separate from one another. And one of the ways that this is often described in, in Buddhist literature that I've come across and that I particularly like is the relationship between waves and water. So in the ocean, there are lots of waves, different sizes, different shapes, they last different amounts of time, they're constantly moving and flowing. And so there are many different people. We're all constantly, we're different, we're constantly changing, we're flowing, and yet at the same time, we're all made up of water. Quite, quite literally, but... <laughs> The point is that we're all part of this, what we might call, we've called the universe self of this very deeply connected thing. And so we're just one, each of us is a manifestation of this thing, one wave. And so when you kind of look at it this way, you can't really possess anything in reality because there is no you to possess it. Mm -hmm. And there is no thing for you to possess. It's all just a flow, things changing from one form to another, constantly moving. And so when we tell some, like tell ourselves, you possess something, it's kind of a conceit. You know what? It's just like, yeah, like, you don't possess anything. What are you talking about? You don't actually possess anything. Uh, an example that came to mind was, you know, if you, you make a beautiful garden, this is my garden beautiful, look at all these vegetables. Deer will just come in and eat all of it. They don't, they don't, they don't know, that's, that's Daigon's garden. We shouldn't touch that one. Said, look at all this awesome food. It's nicely curated for us at the buffet. It's just right here for us to eat. So it's just, it's a little conceited. And I mean, you can't even really possess your body in a way. The, I mean, what is it? Every seven years, every single cell in your body is replaced. You can get to choose to do that. The material that makes up our bodies, 
came from many, many sources. And for a little while, they'll be in the form of what we might call our skin bag. And eventually we'll curl our toes and then that material will be returned back. So the, the wave will dissipate, but the water is still there and it'll just go out into different forms. And so in this idea that we can't really possess anything and there's nothing really separate from us fundamentally, I think a reasonable question might be is, well, how do we express this understanding? It's kind of a, it's a, it's a neat concept. You know, it sounds nice, certainly nice to hear, but what, how do we, how does that come up in our life? How do we live with that kind of understanding? And I don't mean understanding, but understanding a deeper understanding that you have in your heart. And really, I think all, pretty much all the precepts are natural expressions of this, but especially with, with, with this week coming up, there's one component of Buddhist practice that I would really like to emphasize, and that is the first paramita, or the first perfection of practice, and that is dana, or generosity, giving. And when we really begin to feel it in our heart, how deeply connected we are with everything around us, and how dependent we are on so many things supporting our lives, I think it's gratitude is a very natural <laughs> reaction to have to that, you know, just to be very thankful and grateful for everything that this universe self has provided for you. And when you kind of have this sense of gratitude inside you and carry it around, it's also natural to give. You want to, when you're grateful, you want to give. It's just, it just feels right to do it to give thanks. And so in this kind of place of the sense of gratitude and interconnection, when you give, it is not about getting something in return or when you are receiving something, it is not about gaining or possessing. You're not really you're not gaining something when you receive this gift. You don't really lose anything when you give and you don't really gain anything when you receive. But again, it's just this constant flow of things changing forms, of this kind of universal self moving around a little bit. And so when we view that everything is part of our life, taking care of others is very natural. It's just it, to make it not feel so natural, you have to create a separation before and think, oh, no, that's. That's not my problem. That's, that's Michelle's problem. I'm not dealing with that one. <laughs> I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> you have to impose this separation that isn't really there between yourself and others. But when you don't impose that separation, it's just a natural expression of taking care of your life, which includes everything around you. So we naturally want to help. And these kind of things, they don't have to be saving the world actions that we, I think is pretty easy for us to get wrapped up in. You know, how can I help? What can I do? I want to, I want to save the world. I need, I need to be the one that saves the world. These can be small things. 
helping a neighbor, listening to a friend or a loved one, volunteering your time, coming out to Owan to sit together and share your life and your experience with others. I think in these ways, it's very, those bodhisattva vows we chanted today. It's, you know, what is right in front of me right now? What can I give right now in this moment? I can be an aisle for someone who yearns for land. It can be a bed for someone who needs sleep or a lamp for someone who needs light. It can be a ride for someone who needs to get out to Fazendo for service today. So there are, there's just, I think we have, and I know I certainly have a tendency to minimize these sorts of things. We just think uh, last week during our discussion, we talked about the word just. It's I'm just giving someone a ride. I'm just listening to a friend. I'm just whatever. And Mado advised us to get rid of the word just, that I'm listening to a friend. I'm giving someone a ride. Because in the same way that this big connected web can impact our, and does impact our lives all the time, these seemingly small things that you might do branch out. It goes both ways. You never really know the impact of something you might do. And you might be surprised that it, however small it may seem to you, to someone else, it might be a very big thing and it might just save their life. So in this kind of orientation towards life of viewing it and understanding, feeling it as deeply connected to your own, giving is very natural. And I think it's, it makes a lot of sense. It's one of the perfections of practice is how can we be generous and show gratitude towards others. The Native American peoples have a tradition. I'm sure they have many traditions, but <laughs> they have one that is related to regifting. Now you may, when I was growing up, this was called Indian giving. Mm -hmm. Sounds like some of you have heard that term before. It's very pejorative and it very much is the spirit of someone gives you something and then they take it back. And you think, that's mine. You just gave it. There's no take backs. You can't do that. That's my possession. And so, yeah, when I was growing up, Indian giving was a very, was, call someone an Indian giver was not a flattering thing at all. <clears throat> but this may not shock you all that much. That wasn't the actual spirit of the tradition. <laughs> and it's been warped a little bit from the original intention of it happens from time to time in the U.S. <laughs> but really, when in the, in, the, in the original intention of it, when a gift was received, it was not meant to be kept. Rather, it was, it would be held on to that individual while they needed it. And then when another individual came that had need for that gift, they would transfer it to them. It would re-gift it. And so in that way, the gift keeps, stays alive. It doesn't become obsession in, someone, in someone's garage. It keeps moving and flowing to other people. And I think that this is really a very, a very wonderful idea. And I think it's very representative of Buddhist teachings as well. 
because for at least two and a half thousand years, these teachings have been given freely by people and passed down to us. Buddha himself, upon his enlightenment, he didn't actually want to teach. He thought, you know, I was like, wow, I feel, I feel great. You know, I'm liberated from suffering. You know, I'm just, I'm just here. I'm, it's gonna be a, it's gonna hang out for a while. <laughs> it was awesome. And he was worried that people wouldn't be able to understand these teachings that he is he had discovered. But yet, the very teachings and realizations he had of this deep connection with all beings, and at the same time, compassion towards all beings, meant he couldn't keep it to himself. He had to share in these teachings. And not just Buddha, but many, many beings for at least two, two and a half thousand years have received these teachings <clears throat> and held them lightly and then gave them freely to others. And because of that, we can be sitting here today talking about it. And so I think this idea of being able to just re-gifting, I think is a really nice way to approach, to approach these, um, our practice. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how we might go about, you know, moving from this intellectual understanding of, yeah, you say we, you know, we are deeply connected with all beings. It's certainly a nice idea, but I don't really feel like that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't really know if I, I feel it. And one way, and this may be a shock to all of you in our tradition that we might approach this is through sitting, our sitting practice. Specifically, shikantaza, which is just sitting. We're not really sitting to gain anything, because in one sense, you're already, whether you feel it or not, part of the ocean. You're already there. You, don't, you fundamentally don't have to do anything. And yet, try and build this house around ourselves and kind of make ourselves smaller and tidy. So when we sit, we sit with this spaciousness where we just, we're not trying to control our mind or anything. We're just letting whatever comes up, come up, and we let it leave on its own. So when you sit with this spaciousness, sometimes say, you know, you drop away body and mind, which is you let the small self kind of evaporate. And when you do that, and when you let the, those walls come down, the whole universe is there. When that small self kind of disappears a little bit, the universe starts to come in. And similarly, as you sit, this feeling of spaciousness and connection that can come up, as you sit longer, it starts to follow you when you leave the cushion. That cushion starts to get grafted onto your butt <laughs> and go with you when you leave the zendo. And so you just kind of start to naturally feel this, just carry this spaciousness with you. And so the, 
kind of relating it back to that story of William Penn, you start to feel the weight of that sword and you start to take it off and then, then you'll put it back on for a little bit and you'll take it off and you'll put it on, on and off. But more and more when you start to wear it, it you're very, you're cognizant of it and you can wear it much more lightly. You can wear it lightly. And so when I think through sitting with this kind of spaciousness, when the universe presents something to us, offers us something, instead of trying to grab it, trying to grab water with your you know, closed fist, which is impossible, it just goes right through your hand. You can't really hold on to it. Instead of trying to possess it as it kind of comes into your life, instead, put your hands out, cup them like this, just like we hold the Buddha bowl, Norioki, as Buddha and monastics did when they go out begging, they hold their bowls. People would put food in and they received it with humility and with gratitude. And then so we can you know, hold that water in our hands for a little bit. And then when it's time, and we can, that it might need a new owner, owner, <laughs> might need to move on to a different person. We can let it go. We can hold it lightly. And it's, we don't feel like we're losing something when we get it. <clears throat> so in this idea of just freely giving, another one of our precepts comes up, which is, it's the eighth one, but it, it reads, sharing, understanding, freely giving of self. And this, this precept has been sticking with me for a long time and is definitely a point of practice for me. And I'll share with all of you a teaching Mado offered me that had been very helpful when I was in a time where every so often uh, my depression kicks in and my natural tendency when I am in a state like that is to withdraw from people, just to withdraw. I start to shrink my life down and I start to neglect friends, relationships, obligations. And when I was talking to Mayo about this, something she offered to me was to, when you feel yourself starting to withdraw like that, start to create that separation between you and others. You start to build that small self again and really try to make it the solid thing that's just yours. It's to just give it away, to just give yourself away. I think that was, that's been something I've been working with ever since and has been very helpful in my life is when I, when I feel myself starting to, to withdraw, I, I just, I find a way that I can do something for others. I send my mom a message. How you doing? Uh, I call my brother. I, I clean the living room for my roommates, something. It doesn't have to be you know, a big thing, but you just do something where instead of trying to just withdraw and become smaller, you just kind of open your life back up again and you let it connect with others around you. What can you do for others? Because at least I found that often doing things for others alleviates your suffering a little bit. Just when you're not, so wrapped up in your own stuff, 
even when I'm still in a throw of depression, helping others helps me about that. Um, and so I think there are, there are, I mean, that's not to say to never practice self-care and self-compassion, right? Because in that same sense that we're all connected, taking care of your, of this one is the same as taking care of everyone. So, but I think there are skillful ways in which you can do it where you don't create that separation between yourself and others. I think we often call these the refuges. We can take refuge in the Buddha, Buddha. take refuge in the Dharma, and in the Sangha, the community. And so I think the refuges and all the different ways that they come into our lives are really nice ways of taking care while not creating that separation between ourselves and others. So one other way that, that I have been relating to this giving yourself away is I used to often think that when I was struggling with something, that my struggles, whatever they were, most of, for most of my life, it was mental health. It was if I, I can't share that with people because I would be a burden, be a burden. On Here's all my baggage. Just take that. I'll let you deal with that. That was how I felt about it. So I, I kept it all to myself. But in a way, of course, there are kind of skillful and wholesome ways to share your struggles with others. But when I was withholding all of that, I was depriving people of an opportunity to help, giving someone else an opportunity to help you, giving them a chance to offer wisdom and compassion, giving them a chance to show and develop trust with one another or intimacy. And so, or, and I, this is one that was definitely very helpful in my life was giving someone a chance to see that you are struggling and so that they don't feel so isolated when they are struggling that they're going, yeah, he's struggling too. But, um, cause I know people's honesty about their struggles with their mental health and, and things like that. For me, it was, is very significant and it in no small part uh, helped save my life. So the, ever since then that has been a point of practice for me, which was to do what others had done for me to pass that gift along that they gave me to try and be as open and share with others about these sorts of things, even when it's really uncomfortable to do so. And I think that's one of the wonderful things that we do together as a Sangha here every week. I'll close with a quote from my favorite fantasy book series. The quote comes from a character who's describing compassion. And they say about compassion, we know of its worth, yet in knowing we then attach to it a value we guard the giving of it, believing it must be earned. Compassion is priceless in the truest sense of the word. It must be given freely, 
in abundance. I think in our practice, we would throw wisdom in there too. So I'm very grateful for all of you. And I hope you all have a wonderful week of giving thanks.